Hey, good morning. My name is Ryan Lee. I'm one of the elders here at River West, and this is my family. This is my wife, Noelani, and my daughters, Karina and Malia. And we have the privilege of helping lead you, our church family, into the first reading of the Advent season. So before we get going, um, I want to share a little bit about what Advent is. And um, contrary to what my girls sometimes think, Advent is not 24 consecutive days of chocolate, okay? But rather, it is a time of waiting and of longing. And uh, our founding pastor, Guy Gray, he um, had a phrase that comes to my mind when I think about Advent. And he said that we as believers, we live in the intersection of hurt and hope. And that is where we live. That is, you know, the in-between place that we live in, especially during Advent season, that, that we live in that tension of hurt and hope. And so if your year has been anything like mine, it's probably been a lot of stuff in the hurt column and, you know, just stuff, disappointments and just living in a broken world. All that stuff just adds up. And, you know, so we just... You know, during this time, we, we think about our hearts and how do we respond to all that hurt and disappointment? And, you know, does, do we let it become something we become bitter about and angry? Do we become full of despair and despondent, you know, feel crushed by that? Or do we respond, you know, um, as believers and we respond by joining, you know, the global church in thinking about, you know, come, Lord Jesus, come. And come, you know, finish what you started. Come, you know, wipe away every tear, you know, restore all things to as you intended to be. You know, give us peace, Lord, during this time. So with that in mind, we're going to read from Micah and, uh, you know, think about the prophecy of the Old Testament. I'm going to read from Micah 5, 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Will you please join us in reading the response out loud together? O ruler in Israel, born in Bethlehem of the tribe of Judah, you lead your people in the strength of the Lord, so that all who are in your care now dwell secure. Come and shepherd your flock and be our peace. And so this morning, we light the candle of peace as we celebrate Christ our Messiah, who is himself the peace of our world. You bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Father, what a precious moment to be here, to be together, brothers and sisters, on the left and the right, to worship, to sing. We're reminded today of all the beauty, all the mystery, all the power of the message of Christmas. It's wonderful. Our hearts are longing for it today. To consider the beauty, the mystery, the grace of a child who would be born the very presence of the living God in our midst. Our hearts long to rejoice and ponder these truths today. And so thank you, God, for this great gift. We look forward, Lord, to 
being in the word to hear from you, Jesus. And so we pray for these next few moments together, for your will to be done, your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Welcome. You glad to be here today? Merry Christmas. Do you like our decor up here? Isn't that pretty and nice? I'm going to invite our ushers to come and they will receive the offering as a part of our worship. And we're going to get into the word in just a moment. But before we do that, I want to take the opportunity to talk about our Christmas season around here. So will you grab the little postcard that was on the seat when you came in that says Christmas Eve? We have a little philosophy around here that goes like this. The philosophy is that when we think of our Christmas Eve services, we don't think of them as something that the staff is putting on for the church as much as we think of them as something that our church is putting on for our community. And so we get up and we will regularly tell you, we need your help. We, we, we need folks who would volunteer on Christmas Eve in our children's ministry. So if you have gone through all the steps of being background checked and all those things, and you're willing to serve at one of those first two services, the two and four where there's a children's program, we really could use your help for that. But more importantly, what we do is we, we remind you, the purpose of this card is that you would invite a friend or a neighbor, a family member, the service, we're already praying about it, we're getting ready, and the purpose of this service is for you to bring someone who will encounter the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so take this card, put it on the corner of your desk at work, leave it on your on your on the glove box of your car, ready to hand it to someone to invite someone to come and worship. We have three services as always. We have a two, a four, and 11 p.m. They're all the same. They're all candlelight. And here's what we've learned. That four o'clock service is really popular. Last year, 960 people came to the four. 560 came to the two and 460 came to the 11. Okay. So that four is really popular, but here's what you don't know. The four is really popular, but the two and the 11 are the most anointed of the three. (laughs) So if you came to one of those services, you're just going to have a totally different experience. All right. And so you could leave a little room at that four. So it's not as crowded. See what I did there. Okay. Come to one of those. They're all the same, except you can't bring your children to that 11. There's no children's program at the 11. I don't have to explain that. And uh, it's going to be an amazing time. And would you also please pray for Christmas Eve, pray for our service, put that on your daily prayer list that God would, would bless. Last thing I want to tell you tonight, Night, right here in our sanctuary, our children are putting on a musical, a Christmas musical, and we hope you'll come back for that. Here's how it works. That musical happens at the end of the five o'clock service. So you can either come back to the five and be a part of the whole service, or if you just want to catch the musical, you could come back at about 6.15. The musical will start at 6.30. It's going to be amazing, adorable faces, children singing. You will be so touched. It'll be wonderful. All right, hey, do this. Will you stand and greet someone with so much Christmas joy they can't even take it? Make them feel welcome. Meet somebody new. All right. Will you, as you're getting settled there, pull out your Bible and open to the Gospel of Luke. Ushers are coming if you need a Bible, if you don't own a Bible. Turn in that Bible to Luke chapter 12. Today we come to the end of a major unit in our study of Luke, the end of a sermon that Jesus preached. And so this will be the last sermon of 2019 in our study of Luke. And then next week we'll be into some more Advent services. But what you don't know is that this morning is actually a Christmas sermon using Luke chapter 12, but it's going to be one of the more unusual Christmas sermons you've heard. Okay. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me start by sharing with you something personal. While you're turning there, I want to talk a little bit about uh, a personal reflection that I've had. This is a reflection about what's happened to me personally 
as a Christian man and as a pastor, as I have studied Luke's gospel verse by verse by verse in order to preach Luke's gospel verse by verse by verse, what I need to say to you as your pastor is this has actually impacted me more than I ever thought it would. In my 24 years of ministry, I cannot think of anything that's had a deeper impact on me than studying through a gospel like Luke, reading every verse and preaching every verse. You need to know these kinds of things impact the pastor too. And here's why, here's what's happened to me. Something, there's something about focusing in on all of the things that Jesus said. The things that I love about what Jesus said and also the things that challenge me. Here we have the son of the living God who leaves the throne of heaven. He squeezes himself into frail humanity. He walks among us. He's headed to a sinner's cross. We've learned this where he will suffer and die and be raised again. But along the way, he teaches. And he says many things. Some of those things are incredibly encouraging. It's like getting a back scratch from Jesus. And you're like, oh, oh, that feels good. But not everything feels good. Sometimes you study a gospel like Luke and you'll come across something Jesus said and you'll realize, I don't like this very much. This makes me feel uncomfortable. And I have realized as a pastor that this is one of the advantages of a church gathering and preaching through expositionally, verse by verse, through a book of the Bible. It's like a, it's like a protection for a church. It protects us from only focusing on the things that we love and like to think about. We're forced to gather and read and study and deal with things that are challenging. It's a protection that would prevent a church from creating Jesus in our own image. Amen? Amen? I thought about this this week when I went on my Google search engine and I typed in Jesus in modern art. I typed that in my Google search and I thought, well, what will come up? What kind of images, what kind of depictions, portraits of Jesus do people come up with? And I have a few of them. Can I share these with you? Okay. This first one will be very familiar if you've been raised in the church. This is what I call the white Western Jesus. Okay. It's been said that in the beginning, God created us in his image. And ever since we've been returning the favor and there it is. Can I tell you, Jesus was not Caucasian. Okay. He was not Caucasian. So here's another depiction, another portrait of this on the other end. This is what I call Rastafari Jesus. Okay. This is a little better. The, the color of the skin is probably a little closer, but here we have this. This actually was a portrait by a Bulgarian painter who watched the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. And then he painted this and it's sort of free love Jesus. And, and there's a lot of great to that, but it's, you know, it's got its problems. And then here is a really close cousin to that one. This is what I call <laughs> dank Jesus. Okay. Now, um, I was, I'm from Eugene, so I'm really familiar with this Jesus, but um, this is the Jesus who promotes legal marijuana. I had a, I had a high school kid when I, when I was doing ministry in Eugene who met with me and he said, Adam, I want you to know that when I'm high, I understand the Bible better. And I said, you're understanding some things, but I guarantee you it's not the Bible. Okay. All right. So that's, we should put that away quickly. Here's the one that's probably the most representative of our contemporary culture. Boy, if there's a Jesus people want, it's this Jesus. I call this the, we're good, Jesus. We're good, right? Everything's cool. This Jesus, this is the Jesus many people want. This is the Jesus who never said anything challenging. He never placed any demands on anyone's life. He never drew boundaries around things. He never challenged anyone. He never called anyone to something difficult. This is the Jesus of love and joy and peace and kind. He, well, he came to bring peace at any cost, but he, but he never pushed. He never challenged. He never made anyone 
feel like they had to move towards him in order to know God. And can I tell you something, River West? This is why we're thankful for the gospel of Luke. Amen? This is why. Luke 12 is this powerful corrective for the modern portrait of Jesus. Because Luke 12, what we're going to find is in in the passage we're going to study today, Jesus is going to tell us why he came. He's going to say two times, I have come. It's an advent passage. I have come. That's what the word advent means, the coming of Christ. And Jesus in this passage, two times he's going to say, this is why I have come. But it's not what you're expecting. And so you look at it with me, Luke 12. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through the whole passage, verse by verse by verse. I'm going to draw out some ideas. We're going to let the words of Jesus hang in our hearts. And then at the end, I'll share my points. So we'll do it a little different today. We look at it with me, Luke 12, starting in verse 49. I have come to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. Now, I guarantee you, you're not going to see that on a Christmas card this year, okay? It's like season's greetings from the Johnsons with a picture of baby Jesus with fire coming out of his, I've come to cast fire. No, that's not on the Christmas card, is it? Here he goes. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you. But rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, as if that relationship needed to be any more complicated than it is. Okay, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Whoa. Now here's what's happened. Bible readers have read this passage and they stumble over it immediately because they get to this phrase, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? And Jesus says, actually, no. Some division. And the reader's thinking, well, wait a minute. But the Bible tells us Jesus did come to bring peace on earth. So what's happening here? Is Jesus contradicting himself? What am I to make of this? Several years ago, I listened online to a lecture from a renowned atheist named Dan Barker. Dan Barker is the president of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. He's a gifted scholar. He's a gifted communicator. What I learned about Dan Barker was that he was an evangelical pastor for 19 years. 19 years he preached. He actually wrote children's Christmas musicals. He did not write the one we're doing tonight. Okay, I'll let you know that. But he did. He wrote and he preached and then One day, he walked away from his faith. And he stood up and he gave a lecture on the 14 14 contradictions in the Bible that prove to him that God cannot be true. And contradiction number one had to do with what the Bible says about peace. Isn't that amazing? But wait a minute. Let's slow down and think about this. Surely there is an explanation for this. And there is. The Bible says over and over, the message of Christmas is a message of peace on earth. The Lee family just read one of the most beautiful Christmas prophecies from Micah. It's all about a child who would be born in Bethlehem. who would be a shepherd of a people. And as he would shepherd them, they would know peace. That's a promise of God. Some of the most beautiful Christmas prophecies are about peace on earth. Here's one, Isaiah 9. I'll put it on the screen. Just read along. Isaiah 9, a famous Christmas passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, 
everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The most famous story in the Gospels, the most famous Christmas story is the story when the angels show up to the shepherds. They announce the birth of Christ and then thousands of them erupt in praise and they sing out, here's the meaning, the true deep meaning of the birth of Christ. It's the famous verse, Luke 2, verse 14. I'll put it up. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those with whom he's pleased. So the reader gets to Luke 12 and Jesus says, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I've actually come to bring division. And the reader is rightly confused. What does it mean? This verse, you'll remember last year, the Sunday before Christmas, we preached a whole sermon on this verse alone. And here's what we learned. We noticed the shepherds take two ideas, two things that are happening and they hold them together in a tight unit. They say there's two things happening. Glory to God in the highest place. That's glory to God in the heavens and peace on earth. And what we learned in that sermon was you have to hold those two things together. You can't have one without the other. So Jesus would say, the reason there's no peace on earth is because God is not being given glory in heaven. People want peace, but they don't want God to be glorious. And they sure don't want God to be on the throne of their lives. Oh, we work for peace in our world. We educate, we strive, we try to force peace. Jesus says, there cannot be peace as long as God is not getting glory in the highest place. Amazing. Jesus says, have I come to bring peace on earth? Well, yes, but first I have to create a little bit of division. Because in order to bring peace on earth, I have to fix the vertical problem, which is human sin has broken our desire for God to receive glory. Have you noticed? Look at verse 49. Jesus talks about these, he piles up these symbols and the reader's going, fire. Jesus came to bring fire. Then Jesus talks about a baptism and the fire hasn't been kindled and the reader's trying to piece all this together. I mean, just look over your own Bible and go, what is the logical flow of this? Fire in the Bible is a metaphor predominantly for judgment. The judgment of God, it's a burning metaphor. And baptism is a metaphor for sinking into death and desolation. That's the symbolism of baptism. It's a symbol of, of dying, going all the way down into the watery, dark depths. Fishermen in ancient Israel, when their boat would sink to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, they would say, it's baptized. <laughs> it sunk all the way to the bottom. And Jesus says, I'm come to bring a fire. I have a baptism. He's not, he's not going to be dipped in water. He's speaking metaphorically of his own sinking into death. And Jesus says, but the fire's not been kindled yet. Why would he say that? Here's Jesus. Think about this. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what's waiting for him. A cross where he will die where he will be baptized into complete destruction. Jesus says, I've come to bring a fire, but that fire's not been kindled. When will it be kindled? When I am baptized into death. River West, Jesus says, I've come to bring peace on earth, but first I have to bring a division. And the thing that you need to realize is the division begins in me. Where will the fire first be? Kindled, it will be kindled on the wood of a sinner's cross as I take upon myself the sins of a fallen world. Amazing. This is the message of Christmas. Amazing. This is the beautiful, 
beating heart of the gospel. You could search for the rest of your life for a religion or a worldview or a philosophy that will come close to the meaning and the beauty of this and you'll never find it. It's the good news about Jesus Christ. Amazing. And I can take you to the moment, the very place I was sitting when I first heard the gospel preached like this. I'll never forget it because it changed my life forever. I was 18 years old. I was at a Young Life property in Canada called Malibu Club. And there I sat in the club room surrounded by 325 high school people while a speaker preached the gospel. And he talked about this. He talked about a God who left all of the privileges of heaven to squeeze himself into frail humanity. And why? To become sin for us. There he is, the son of the living God, hanging on a cross where the fire of God's judgment burns first. And why? So that he could free people in God's grace from the punishment for their own sin. And I remember hearing that gospel and I felt like my heart was going to burst for the first time. It was like someone reaching spiritually into the cavern of my heart and flipping on a light switch where light came on and I realized, I believe this. My whole life has changed. I remember thinking, I have to reply, I have to respond to this. And then the speaker did what they taught, typically do at a Young Life camp. He said to these 325 kids, I want you to go out into the darkness together, which you almost never say to 325 high school kids on other circumstances, but here it works somehow. And there he was, he said, go out because what, what we just talked about, you have to make a decision. And there I sat on a rock looking out over the bay and God changed my heart. And I became a follower of Jesus. Amen. And you know what? That's going to happen today right here in this room. I believe it with all my heart. I don't know where you are. I don't know how you came in. I don't know what you're carrying. I don't know what hurts you have. I don't know what doubts you have. I don't know where you're at with God or with Jesus, but I know this. You're not here by accident. Jesus is the sovereign living Lord and he invited you here to hear his gospel because he has a plan today to turn on the light of your heart and draw you into a relationship with your creator. And a little bit later in the service, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you how you can do that. But first, what I need you to see is that Jesus says, listen, that message does create peace on earth. But first, in order to create peace, I have to go through the valley of division because that message can be divisive because not everyone responds. Some people hear it and their hearts erupt. Some people hear it and they harden their hearts and they resist. And sometimes the most painful result of that is Brokenness in families, division. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. One of the biggest pain points in a church, in our church, in any church, is, is when someone you love rejects Jesus. It can be so painful. Divided families. This is why I love preaching the, every verse because Jesus says, I know, I understand I feel like when Jesus said those words about fathers and sons and daughters, and he was, I bet his heart was breaking as he said that. It can create so much pain. I have a brother who is not following Jesus. I have a twin brother who's a Christian. Some of you have met him and you thought it was me and then it was awkward and then you got mad at me. And that's a whole other story. Anyway, but I have an older brother and he was raised in the same house. We grew up in the same church, raised by the same parents who loved Jesus. He heard the same gospel. And for whatever reason, he is resisting Jesus. And you know, I pray for him 
every single day. I pray for him. I remember four years ago, we were at Black Butte for our Christmas holiday. We were spending time together and I love my brother. He's one of my best friends. He's brilliant. He's a voracious reader. We were laughing, talking, and suddenly he got really intense and he looked at me and he said, Adam, be honest with me. Do you worry about my eternal destiny? Merry Christmas. I was like, okay, we're going there. And then he goes, because I want you to know, I'm not worried about it. And I said, but Trevor, that's precisely why I am worried about it. I'm worried about it because you're not worried about it. And I love you. And I want you to be worried about it. Jesus says, have I come to bring peace on earth? Absolutely. But that path will take people sometimes through the valley of division. Valley of division. Okay, let's keep reading. We have more to do. Here's what Jesus said next. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say at once there will be scorching heat. And it happens. Apparently in Palestine, it's easy to predict the weather. Okay, all right. But actually it's pretty easy to predict it here too. It's gonna rain, all right? I'm just gonna warn you. No matter what's happening, it's gonna rain. A couple years ago, I was standing out there in the foyer and I had met a new family and they were here. They'd moved here in November they were visiting our church. They'd come from Orange County, okay, in November. And I was talking to them, and I, and I said to them, have you guys settled down? Have you bought a house? And the husband said, well, we don't, we don't want to settle down yet. We're going to give this six months to see how we do with the weather here. And I thought, mm, I won't see you in six months, okay? All right. But here's Jesus. He's like, Now, wait a minute, think about this. Jesus says, you have in you this innate ability to read the signs. You know, clouds come in off the Mediterranean, it's gonna rain. A wind comes up from the south, from the Sahara Desert, you know, it's gonna be super hot. But then Jesus says, but wait a minute, that innate ability that ability to read the empirical evidence. It's not limited to physical, the world, the weather. He says, it actually, you have an ability to read the spiritual signs too. Look at it. This is why he gets intense. Verse 56, you hypocrites. I think he said this in love. He said, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? He's saying you, you have the innate ability. Every human being, River West, listen to me. Every human being is created in the image of God. We were created with an innate sense. I'm a creation of someone who must be unbelievably powerful and creative. And I know it, but for some reason, some people decide I'm going to suppress that. I'm going to ignore that. I don't want to deal with that. And Jesus says, no, read the signs, read the signs, stop ignoring them. He goes on. He uses a parable. He says, why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you've paid the very last penny. It's a a parable. Jesus is saying, imagine you, you owe someone a debt. And you know, I, 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 I know I'm in, I'm in debt to this person. No, Jesus says, no one in their right mind would wait until they get dragged before a judge because if they do, they'll have to pay every last penny. 
And she says, the wise person would say, I'm in debt to this person. I'm going to try to settle before we even get there. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, the signs are clear. The signs are clear. Today is the day to get right with God, to settle your debt. Do it today. You know, your heart is telling you, wait a minute, I know I am in debt to my creator. Sin has broken my world. It's broken my life. I owe him a debt. Jesus says, you know this. Today is the day of self. Don't wait until, don't think I'll do this tomorrow. I'll do this later or, or worse yet. I'll wait until after my death. Jesus says, no, do it today. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they'd seen him praying and they said, we want to pray like that. And so they said, Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? And he taught them the Lord's Prayer. We studied it a couple months ago, chapter 11. What does he say? Right there in the middle of the prayer, verse 4, he says, here's what you pray. You say, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who are indebted to us. So Jesus uses debt as a metaphor for sin. Sin puts me in debt to God. But what's scandalous is that Jesus says, you can actually pray, and in a moment I'm going to tell you how to pray this way. You can actually come before God with all of your debt and say, God, will you just wipe it away? And Jesus says, God will. And this is scandalous. We, so we hear this so much, we're like, it doesn't hit us. We, we don't realize the scandal of someone just wiping away a debt. So what, I, what did I say when we preached this? I said, if you want to know how audacious this is, tomorrow morning, pick up the phone, call your mortgage company, and say, will you wipe away my debt and see what they say to you, okay? All right? And then I thought of a personal story. When I was a young man, early on in ministry, I borrowed a ski boat from a really good friend of mine in Eugene. And his, this was the brand new ski boat, state-of-the-art, very nice. I took it out. I was taking some high school kids water skiing and stuff. And at the end of the day, I was bringing the boat back into the dock. And right as I got into the dock, the wind had picked up, so it was a little bumpy. And right as I was coming in, I was I was coming into the dock slow, but someone flew behind me and created a wake and that wake rolled up and it pushed that boat forward and it hit the corner of the dock and it punched a hole this big right in the side of the boat. And some of you right now for the first time are taking notes and you're saying, do not loan my boat to Pastor Adam, which is not what you should be writing about, okay? This is not the point of the story. The point of the story is I knew immediately I'm responsible for this. I mean, his debt and how the, you know, you know how the story ends. I pulled up to his house. I had my checkbook out. I was like, I have no idea what this is going to cost me, but I know I owe. And he said, forgiven, forget about it. Wiped off the books. And I'm talking about a ski boat. Okay. Now take that up into eternity to the living God who sends his son into the world to say, you can pray. And you need to pray. And pray, God, will you forgive my sins? Jesus says, it will be wiped away. Be wiped away. How? Let's read on. Verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Well, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood... Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In 24 years, I never thought, I'm going to preach Luke 13, verse 1. (laughs) Okay? But aren't you glad we're preaching verse by verse through the gospel of Luke? What's happening here? Why is Jesus, what's happening? This is a historical event. Galileans, which is where Jesus was coming from, had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship and Pilate massacred them and mixed their blood. He did the most atrocious thing. It's a horrible, violent act. And the people walking along with Jesus are thinking, wait a minute, we're a bunch of Galileans on our way to Jerusalem on a 
pilgrimage, and we're talking about signs, and so they bring this up. And what Jesus does is brilliant. He takes this, and he twists it, and he uses it for his own eternal purposes. Here's what he says. Verse 2. He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or how about those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Jesus brings up another situation where randomly a tower falls and kills people unexpectedly. He says, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So it's amazing. We, we do this. We watch what's happening in human history. We hear of atrocities and hurricanes and natural disasters. And sometimes people wonder, and people have even suggested, even Christians, God must be punishing people for sin. We think about that. And you know what Jesus' response to that is? An emphatic no. This is not the heart of God. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, Jesus says, what I'm about to show you is all of this is leading to God's grace. His patience. Do you need to repent? Could you suffer Tragically, an unexpected death? Absolutely, which is exactly why your heart should be considering your eternal destination. And so he shares a parable. He says, he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and he found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, For three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? It's a metaphor of Israel. In the Bible, Israel is always compared to a fig tree. And and here's God saying, Israel, I have, I planted you. I've devoted unending resources in you. You've soaked up resources from the soil. And what fruit have you given me? None. You've been stubborn, disobedient, rebellious. God says, so I'm, I'm sending someone to warn you. In the parable, the vine dresser talks back to the gardener. You see this? So it, he, the vine dresser answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not you can cut it down. It's amazing. And you read it and you go, how does this all fit together? It's so clear. God is saying, I have sent my son into the world to bring peace. And he will bring peace. But peace comes with, first it comes with a message that divides because people have to respond to it. Peace comes with a warning because humans are in rebellion, in sin, the most gracious, kind, patient thing that God could do is warn people. Amen? If he wasn't kind and patient, he wouldn't warn people. But no, he warns. Why? Because he loves. Here is an intercessor, the vine dresser, the gardener, who steps in and says, wait, one more chance. One more chance. It's a beautiful picture of the patience of God, God's kindness. And what is the purpose of patience and kindness? That people's hearts would be triggered and we would think, I want to get right with God. God's been so good. He's been so patient with me. And so how how are you to respond? Here's what I want to do. I'm going to give you three suggestions. Three things that I actually want you to do right now in this space before you leave. And I I want you to write these down. Okay. Go to your notes, scratch out the part about not lending me your boat and write something godly in there. Okay. 
here's the first thing I want you to do. And I want you to do this while we're worshiping, as you take communion, as you pray. Number one, as painful as it might be, mute your cell phones. No, okay. As painful as it might be, do not allow human relationships to prevent you from dealing with the relationship that matters most. Your relationship with your creator. Because I'm gonna let that hang, because I know, I know some of you have come in and you're thinking to become a Christian, to, to repent, to put faith in Jesus, to become a part of this will be so costly for me. My, my friends, my family, what will I lose? And Jesus says, I know. But Jesus says, wait a minute. Don't sacrifice the temporal for the eternal. Don't allow a human relationship, the pressure, the loss to prevent you from being right with your creator. I meet, I've met many River Westers who have come to me and they said, I, I grew up in a culture, or I came from a community where to convert to Christianity was so costly. Pastor, you have no idea how much I lost. I lost all my friends. I lost my family. Some people lost jobs. But you know what they say almost every time? But look what I got in return. I got an a new family, more brothers and sisters than I could ever possibly want or need. Okay, you do, you get more, you get more. Don't let human relationships prevent you from doing what you need to do. Number two, as tempting as it might be, don't put off until tomorrow what ought to be settled today. This is the debt part. See, it's human nature. We're like that guy who owes someone something. We're like, well, I'll wait. I'll even try my chances with the judge. And Jesus says, no, today is the day for you. Do it today. You do not know what tomorrow holds. You have no idea. And I know something. You're here right now. And God is speaking. His word, the words of Christ are sounding forth. They're hitting your heart and your mind. And maybe some you're still resisting. And Jesus is saying, don't put this off. Do not put off for tomorrow what could be done, should be done today. Do it today. And then finally, number three, and this is straight out of the Bible. God's patience and God's kindness are meant for a purpose. And that purpose is repentance. That's why God is being patient. That's why he's being kind. That's why the words of Christ sound forth because he's drawing you to, to trigger your heart so that you'll turn in repentance and faith. Here's Romans Do not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to what? Repentance. Repentance where you turn. Did you come in with your heart hardened towards Christ, with your back against God? Repentance simply means to turn and say, Jesus, I believe in you. I repent of my heart and ways. The gospel triggers that response in human hearts. And Jesus is calling you to do that this day, this day. Will you bow your heads with me? I'm going to pray. Jesus, we are so incredibly thankful for every word that you spoke. The comforting words and the words of confrontation, the soft words, compassionate words, 
and the words of warning. The words that are easy on the ears, easy on the heart, and the words that are really hard. Every one held together gives us a biblical balanced view of who you are. And we need it, Lord. And so we pray, would you continue now in this time of worship? Will you speak to our hearts? And we're going to respond today, Lord. We're going to worship. We're going to repent. We're going to turn to Christ in faith. If you came in this morning not sure where you're at with Jesus, not following Jesus, even resisting Jesus, today is your day. As we worship and go to the table, and you can just pray. A humble prayer. In fact, I'll pray it right now. And if this is you, just pray with me. Father, I believe every word that I've heard about Jesus. I believe. I don't understand everything. I don't need to understand the whole thing because I know, I believe that it's true. That sin is my problem. I am in in debt to you and that Christ came to pay for my sin and that there's forgiveness through Jesus. And so I pray, God, forgive me my sins in the name of Jesus. I repent of my ways and I put my hope and faith in Christ alone. Just pray that prayer. Talk to God about that. Do it as you go to the table. Do it as you worship. We love you, Lord. And we pray all these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.